Hey everyone, welcome back to the Saxon Podcast, the first five years. I'm one of your hosts, Agassiz Rodriguez, coming at you from Clemson University. Hi everyone, this is Erica Aguiar coming at you from the University of Florida. And Agassiz, you're not coming from Clemson, you're coming from Leslie Nope's office in Pawnee, Indiana. Erica, stop it. Erica, stop. Erica's referencing my virtual background, which is Leslie Nope's office, because we all aspire to be Leslie Nope. I know I have shown my appreciation and love for Miss Nope many a times, especially around waffles on this podcast, but I do believe it bears repeating. Waffles are superior to pancakes. I will not hear any ifs, ands, or buts about it. That is my stance. That's why I'm in this quote-unquote virtual office. Back to you, Erica. I actually disagree with you on that. That's not a question for today, but I prefer um, pancakes. So I don't know how much further this friendship can go, but thanks everyone for joining us today. Welcome to the last episode of the first five years. Um, as we have learned from Erica Aguiar, um, it has been a blast to do this with everybody, but I think this is where uh, we're in conclu- we are concluding. 10 years of friendship gone over pancakes and waffles. Hi everyone and welcome to the first five years. The podcast for new professionals, folks in the beginning stages of higher ed, anyone interested in learning more about this contentious and fun field that we work in. And as always, we hope to bring you timely information based off of the calendar and time of year and providing a public voice for graduate students and new professionals. And today we are so excited. We're actually doing something a little bit different. Um, So today we're welcoming Dr. Dustin Evett-Young. Dr. Evett Young currently serves as the Associate Director of Career Development at Oberlin College and Conservatory. In addition to career development, he has worked in higher education for nearly 10 years in the areas of student leadership development, campus activities, and fraternity and sorority life. He received his Doctor of Education from Appalachian State University in 2019 and his Master's from the University of Vermont in 2011. So Dustin is here today because he received SACS's 2020 Dissertation of the Year Award. So we're super thrilled to welcome Dr. Dustin Evett-Young. Woo-woo. Hi, everybody. Happy to be here. Thanks for being with us. We're so excited. So we're going to talk a little more about your dissertation and also trying to talk about for those new professionals who are thinking, uh, you know, PhD, EDD, or just some other education is in their path, what a dissertation entails. So thanks for joining us virtually today. And as Erica mentioned, today we're going to be discussing with Dr. Evett Young, specifically on his 2020 Dissertation of the Year dissertation, uh, which is titled White Scripts in Higher Education, White Administrators Navigating Racial Equity and Inclusion Efforts. Um, We do want to do a quick plug of the Dissertation of the Year Award sponsored by SACSA. Supported by the SACSA Foundation via the generous donation of its membership, the Southern Association for College Student Affairs presents an annual Dissertation of the Year Award to recognize high quality student affairs research by doctoral students in the Saxa region. The Dissertation of the Year Award recipient will be recognized by the association and receive a monetary award of $750. The Dissertation of the Year winner is expected to present slash share their results of their dissertation at an upcoming Saxa conference. Additionally, Saxa encourages scholarly inquiry among its membership by annually awarding small grants to advance proposed assessment, research, and evaluation projects. The average grant amount for a single project is $500. Any individual or research team may apply for these competitive grants. The next submission deadline for both the dissertation of the year and research grant is July 1st, 2021. Please see the SACSA website for more information, and we will share the SACSA website a little later in this episode. 
But before we do that, Erica. Yes. What is the best thing you ate this week, Dustin? We're going to talk so deeply about your dissertation, but let's so start. Deeply start. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I live up in Cleveland, Ohio. We have a really, a really great ice cream place, a local place. Um, it's a uh, frozen custard. And we, my husband and I went, um, it was still freezing outside. It's still pretty cold up here in Cleveland. And, but we, we went to this frozen custard place and got some ice cream. Uh, it was a chocolate peanut butter ice cream, homemade frozen custard. It was delicious. That sounds so good. I have been craving ice cream. And then for some reason this week, I decided to do no processed foods. So I am sad. Uh, but Agassi, what is the best thing you ate? So the best thing that I ate this week comes from my favorite little Vietnamese restaurant, which is very close to my apartment, which is very handy slash very dangerous. Um, but I did have quite a killer pho uh, the other nights for dinner. Um, the last couple of weeks have been marked with quite a bit of takeout, as I've mentioned before, because school is beginning to conclude and work is also beginning to kind of wrap up for the semester. So things have just been a little busy. Um, so we had some takeout, we had some pho, big fan, always love it, uh, but that's the best thing. Thank you, Agassi, for making me hungry again. The best thing that I ate this week, so Saturday, I actually went to my first virtual or first ever Passover. Um, and so my partner, Brian, made us matzo brie, which is um, sort of a, a version of, I don't want to say pancakes, that sounds terrible, but it's made with matzo and it was really good. So we did the whole Seder um, virtually a little bit later because his family in Seattle hosted it, but it was really cool um, to learn sort of the whole history of it. And then to have snackies, which is my favorite thing in the world is just to eat lots of food. So it was kind of it was something I've never had before, and I think it'll definitely be something we continue. So very, very good. Look at you, Erica, trying out new things. Also, I saw you crowdsourcing for suggestions on your first Passover on Twitter, um, and I saw a couple of responses. Not as many as I wanted, but do you know what came in clutch? And I'm embarrassed to say this. The Passover episode of Rugrats. It Listen. So that cool. episode of Rugrats is just just iconic. Like when they had, was that the one where where uh, where Tommy was like Moses or something, and he's like, "Let my babies go." Iconic, the, I, I, iconic. Just I, I'm gonna stop. Also very educational. So uh, next year I will likely watch the Rugrats episode of Hanukkah. So uh, there are obviously like lots of other ways to learn, but that is what I had time for because we only had like a two hour leeway. Um, we can talk about this for hours. Miles, we're going to kick it over to you for the would you rather section. Um, gosh, I wish I had planned ahead. I could have asked some Rugrat specific would you rathers, um, which I'm disappointed my, myself about. Um, okay, so I have um, two questions. One of them is like a sort of standard would you rather, you know, like discomfort kind of thing. And then the other's like more of an aesthetics kind of thing. So, um, the first one is, would you rather never type again? So you can't type on a computer. You can still look at them, but you can't type on them. So you're no notes, no emails, um, no typing on social media. Your, your only ways of communicating are talking to people, recording things, writing things down, or would you only 
uh, rather wear dress shoes for the rest of your life. However you define dress shoes, but you know, you're going hiking, you got to wear dress shoes. You, uh, you know, going to the, you know, going to the store, got to push out the trash, got to put on some dress shoes. So those are your two options. Miles, as always, I have a clarifying question. Can I use on my Apple TV, the little, um, like button or on any device really that I could say out loud that I want to watch something or is that forbidden as well? No, you could do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're sort of talk to text that's, that's available to you. Um, so, you know, by, you know, both of these are challenging, but you know, not prohibitive. So I feel like I wanted to squarely place myself in the first one of the, the not typing again. However, after you said, like taking out the trash and doing all these things in dress shoes. And I thought about how fierce I would look taking out the trash in dress shoes. Like I'm actually really stuck. I'm not going to lie because especially with the year we've had where I've barely worn shoes at all working from home, I kind of like the idea of showing out um, and making uh, up for lost time. But I will have to go with the first one because one external processor love to talk things out loud. I'm totally the friend that calls, doesn't text. So honestly, it's not too big of a leap. Erica's like kind of agreeing <laughs> in silence over there. <laughs> uh, but I'd go with the first one. Uh, yeah, I, you know, honestly, I would go with the second one. I mean, Agassi, it was funny when when Miles asked that second question, I could see you perk up. You I could some, something change. Um, no, I think, yeah, with, with the, the environment we've been in, I, you know, I feel like it's just, I feel like I have to wear my Sunday best when I'm going out just to the, you know, running to go get groceries these days um, and, and with everything. So if I have, um, I think I'd rather have to wear dress shoes all the time and just, and just style it and go wear, wear them wherever I need to. Okay, this is, this is taking a lot of thinking. And I think I'm also going to go with number one only because I do not wear dress shoes now because I, I, so we used to be located in the Bain administration building. We're now in the student union. I get away with a lot of just like cute sandals. I sometimes wear um, all birds. Well, I have fake all birds, so like fall birds. And I think that that's my aesthetic now. So if I had to like switch to dress shoes, I'd be roll on comfortable. So give me comfy shoes or give me death, I guess. That's a little dramatic. <laughs> okay. Yep. Sorry about that one. Uh, Miles, next. <laughs> Serious. I don't well, know why I took it there. Good, good shout from, um, I believe Patrick Henry there, but um, I, I don't maybe confusing my um, revolutionary war um, figures. Uh, I'll Google that when we're done here. Um, Okay, this is an aesthetics one. Like, this is really just, you know, like, what's your vibe? Um, would you rather live in a house where uh, made entirely of glass? Now, you know, the structural foundation's concrete. This is a, you know, this is a structurally sound home, but all the walls, inside, outside, it's all glass, and you can't have curtains. Or would you rather live in a house with no windows? So zero windows whatsoever. Hi, Miles. It's, uh, it's Erica again with a clarifying question. Can I choose where I build this home? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm immediately glass home. I'm, I'm particularly thinking of the uh, home from the Twilight film 
um, where the Collins lived and had lots of windows, but they are in the middle of the forest. Who's going to see you? I think it would be scarier if I saw someone because they shouldn't be there, but I need natural light. I also have like lots of flowers in my home and I can't, I need light or, or I would never get out of bed. So yes, curtains, toss them in the wind. I, I need windows in my life. But yeah, Eric, I, I, yeah, definitely agree. I would, I would uh, prefer a window or a house with windows. Um, when you first, Miles, when you first said that, I'm, I'm the type of person, as soon as it gets dark outside, I will close the blinds in my house because I'm, I'm worried people are looking in, but of course we're in a neighborhood. So if we, yeah, if we could pick it anywhere, I would be in the middle of the woods, somewhere in, on a mountain with no one around, windows, wall to wall. That's exactly what I would, what I would go for. It's like a dream house for me. I would also go full windows um, and also like in the woods. It's funny, we're all like, yeah, as long as no one can see me, I'm okay with being like completely transparent. Um, it's where everybody's kind of landed. I would also build it in the mountains or in the in the forest or all that. I'm from Florida. I need natural sunlight in my life. Um, if not, I get very sad. Um, so yes, I'd go with the windows. Okay, quick follow-up, not to drag this out, but don't forget about the interior walls also being glass. So, like, another trade-off here is that you're basically, I mean, like, it's really no, but, like, I mean, we're talking about some intimacy in this glass home. So, just, like, I just wanted to put that back out there um, and just see if that changes things for anybody. It doesn't have to. It's totally fine. I just, you know... If you're inviting guests over, you're like really inviting guests over at that point. So just wanted to just wanted to mention that. Miles is trying to make sure that we all understand that this is a pants on environment at all times. Like there are no ifs, ands, or buts about that one. Like you pants on your body at all times because they can see everything up in there. I don't know how much it changes things for me. I, I mean, it would change the way I live my life currently, but I think that I stick by my answer because then then you're just constantly enclosed. And that's, I'm, I'm making a compromise here, a sacrifice. And I, I can't, I can't go back on my answer. I just can't do it. You could go with that trend that I have seen admittedly on TikTok where people project fake windows and fake window environments onto their walls. I don't know if y'all have seen that Erica, it's very, um, a la, you know, what you were talking about with the, what was that website that you were mentioning that like shows you a different window while you're working? That's what it kind of reminds me of. I think, I think we're all solid here, Miles. Thanks for the clarity, but we, we want the clarity. We want to see it all. Thank you so much, Miles, for joining us. As Erica mentioned, we're now going to transition into our question section. So of course, now we get to have a wonderful conversation with Dustin about her dissertation and soak up a lot of knowledge about the dissertation process. Um, I know I can speak very confidently for Eric and I, uh, none of us have gone through this process. It's something we're considering for the future. So we're gonna be taking notes and thoughts. Um, but first off, Dustin, if you can just tell us a little bit about what brought you to your dissertation topic in the first place. Yeah, so, you know, when I first started my program at App State, I was working, so I was working full-time while I completed my uh, dissertation. And I was uh, working in the Department of Student Engagement and Leadership at App and uh, had been there uh, uh, maybe about two years or so. So I had worked I had worked for about two or three years in student affairs and then was working at App for about two years and then decided to go 
to start in the doctoral program and apply to the App State program. Um, and so my what led me to kind of that point in my career and just my personal and professional interests were really connected with equity and inclusion work and that kind of intersection between equity inclusion and leadership development. So when I first started the program, you know, when you apply to the doctoral program, um, they often want to see what are some things you're thinking about with like a possible research interest, things like that. At that point, all I knew was I wanted to do something with social justice and leadership development in higher ed. Um, I didn't know exactly what that looked like yet, but knew those were kind of the two themes I wanted to really focus on. And uh, my master's thesis at, at the University of Vermont had focused on men and masculinity and specifically with, within fraternity culture. So I interviewed fraternity men and talked about their meaning making as fraternity men and um, with relation to men and masculinity. So again, I had the kind of that background around that identity based perspective and then was bringing that into the program. But, you know, at that point, I still didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So there was a, about three semesters in one, one of our assignments for one of the writing courses we had. Uh, one of my professors asked this really, I think, thought provoking question, and we had to write an essay around this was can can people from I'm paraphrasing, but can people from privileged identities, specifically white men, um, can they have can they slash we because I'm part of this, can we have um, integrity? Is there integrity in and uh, privileged folks, privileged racial identities engaging in social justice work? Essentially, the question was, can can white men do social justice work and can there be integrity in that process? Um, and so that really blew my mind. You know, I was had started the program and I was engaged in, in equity and inclusion work on campus at App State um, and helped, you know, start some some really cool programs focused on inclusion work. Um, but I thought about that a lot around can my how is my own identity as a white person embedded within this work within student affairs and within higher ed? Uh, and so I wrote this kind of reflection paper or essay, you know, it was a couple of pages, maybe like seven to 10 pages. And that really is what planted the seed for me to start to learn more about that. So in that process of understanding and doing research on that, um, I came across some literature around uh, whiteness, you know, I had understood white, white privilege, of course, in, in, in the context of society and in the context of higher ed and student affairs. Um, but there was I hadn't really done a lot of reading around critical whiteness studies. And so that's what really opened the door to understand more about that topic. Uh, but it was that one assignment, you know, because it was a class assignment, so I didn't think much about it. But when we got the question, the prompt question, that's what really planted the seed for me to explore that more. I really like how you talked about the fact that it was an assignment during the program that kind of helped you focus in on what the topic was. Um, I <clears throat> have mentioned before, but I'm, I'm a part-time graduate student and we are, a lot of us are expected to do a thesis. I'm doing a project thesis for, for my program. Um, and that's something that's been talked about a lot in my program is like, how do you arrive? And I know when we first got to the program, it's like, well, I love everything and I'm interested in like 10,000 things. And then over the course of the year, it's felt like we've like whittled down and kind of like narrowed down. And I've also seen through some of the assignments we've had in our coursework that I'm like, okay, like this is kind of where I'm like leaning and seeing themes and like the assignments and the things that I focus on. So I do like that you talked about that because I feel like sometimes you feel like you have to have it all figured out before you start a program and you're like, oh, I'm going to study this exact thing. I'm going to talk about this exact thing. And I think just being open to the idea that like there might be an assignment during your coursework that might just change the way you're like, you know, actually, I started off and I want to do this, but now after this, I want to do something else. So I do appreciate that you talked about that because that can, I feel like there's a lot of pressure with making sure, thinking you have to have it all figured out before you start the program. And I think you're speaking to the fact that like you were kind of figuring it out too. Yeah. And I think, I, I do think that's an important piece, right? Is when, when folks, 
start a doctoral program. And we put so much pressure on ourselves to say, like, am I good enough to be in this program? I mean, I certainly, in my experience with imposter syndrome and, and being a first-gen student, first-generation student and, and getting to the doctoral program at that point in my, in my um, education and in my career to say, oh my gosh, I do have to have everything figured out, right? But it was really, it was, it was good because I think that the pro my program at App really the professor said you don't have to have everything figured out some people started the program came in with my cohort there were about um, 11 of us or so in my cohort and you know maybe one or two of them had a pretty specific maybe a little bit i wouldn't say exactly what they wanted to do but a more narrow focus of what they wanted to do um, and the rest of us pretty much everybody else that was more in the student affairs focus we were like yeah we're just figuring this out as we go um, but that that really helped me kind of re remove some of the the heaviness from myself and expectations I was putting on myself just to be able to be in the moment and and learn from the program and learn about like engage in the reading and, and then be able to apply that in my practice day to day. Um, anyway, so yeah, it was it was really it was helpful to kind of see it in that way. I love that so much because um, I've been thinking a lot about my PhD and a piece of advice that I got was you will know when it's time to get your PhD or EDD when you have a topic. And so I'm really glad that we're talking about this because I have felt for so long, like I'm not ready, right? And, and Agassiz and I are both also first gen. So I think there's a layer of that, but I have consistently felt, well, I have no clue what I want to study. So it's not time. And I think I feel like pretty emotionally moved right now to like apply tomorrow. I'm not ready for that, but because it's, you can figure it out. So that's just like very personally, I feel wow, like I can actually do this. And we haven't even gotten to the second question. So thank you. But, uh, and that's not necessarily terrible advice. It's just, I think it's impossible to know what you want to study when you have no clue what a PhD or EDD program even is yet. So uh, personally, thank you so much for that. I think we could end right here, but we've got some questions. Um, so well, can you just give us a brief overview of your dissertation topic? It's over 200 pages, so that might be tough, but you know, a little bit of the abstract maybe. Yeah, so my, my dissertation uh, focuses on, like I, I mentioned previously, it, it focuses on critical whiteness, um, using that as a, as a framework and as a theoretical framework. Um, so essentially, how do, how do white leaders, white administrators in higher education, um, how, do we, how do we navigate conversations of racial equity and inclusion on our campuses? And, um, you know, again, that's a very, you know, the topic of whiteness in higher education, the topic of white supremacy in higher education is so, so much at the forefront of the conversations and the discourse in, in higher ed today um, and has been has been for years. Right. And we're seeing a lot of these a lot of these topics really bubble up in, in more recent years. Um, so for me, the, the dissertation focuses on kind of using that that concept of whiteness and how whiteness is embedded and white supremacy is embedded and within higher education using that as the backdrop or the theoretical framework and then a lot of my conversations um what i did for my studies i interviewed uh 10 administrators white administrators they had to be directors or deans um, and above and the intention was that i wanted to interview folks kind of upper level administrators within higher education because oftentimes those are the folks who have um the power and power is being a key concept right there in critical theory, but the power to um, to make decisions around resources, hiring practices, financial financial resources. Um, and so really the, the, the whole concept of interviewing or the, the thought process of interviewing these folks was then to actually dig deeper into understanding how does their whiteness 
as their white racial identity, how does that impact um, the ways in which they engage with students or more specifically, how do they engage with other white colleagues on their campuses? Um, and so it was a phenomenology, phenomenological study. It's a big word, right? But phenomenology essentially is like, what is the phenomenon and how do people make meaning of that phenomenon? So in this case, the phenomenon is whiteness. And so how do, how do these participants make meaning of, the, of their whiteness in relation to, the, in relation to higher ed? Um, so I did, uh, there were 10 participants and I joke with people, I did those interviews over Zoom before Zoom was even cool or before Zoom was the thing to do all, all, all day, every day. Um, so I interviewed folks over Zoom, but I did about three rounds of interview uh interviews for most of those so it was about 28 um two uh two people could only do two rounds of interviews so there were a total of 28 interviews and so i ended up with like three over 300 pages of transcription so a lot of data just to play with and, and to to really go through and, and code and, and identify themes and things um but for me the 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 most interesting part of that whole conversation was i was talking with folks that were that were in um, you know, someone that was on the West Coast, I was in North Carolina at the time, I was talking to folks in the Southeast and Florida and Texas and uh, the Northeast area, but I was talking to different different um, directors and deans and it was so cool because I kept thinking to myself, I, I wish these people would, I wish I could bring these people together for almost like a dialogue circle or a conversation on whiteness. Um, but I, I started to realize like the person that's talking about their whiteness that's over on the west coast and there's some similar themes to the person that's talking about it the way in which they're talking about whiteness so they navigate navigate their campus um is similar to what the person in new york's talking about and and southeast and things like that and so what I, essentially from the data what i did was to think about how do how does the topic essentially how does whiteness manifest within higher ed and what are the ways in which white leaders white folks um how do we reinforce? How do we disrupt whiteness in our roles? And so I landed on, and this is the title of my dissertation, I landed on these white scripts uh, and really these archetypes for how white people, white leaders in higher ed, how we show up on our campuses. So how we show up in staff meetings, how we show up in one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, and I kept a lot of, a lot of the work around uh, Robin DiAngelo's work. She talked in her work around uh, white, she, she talked about these scripts, these kind of master narratives or scripts that white people are all part of the same narrative, right? That we have different approaches, but we're all part of this larger, um, this larger system and structure. And so I really just started to play with the data. And that was the fun part. I love that part of the dissertation process was just being able to play with themes and patterns and identify those themes and patterns. And then landed with these five, with these five archetypes. Um, and the, the five, and then I'll, uh, wrap, wrap up with this, but the five archetypes from the findings were um, there was, uh, and I gave them character names, and so there I use composite characters and composite narratives to define these archetypes. But there's um, Patty, the self-proclaimed progressive, which is often the person that shows up and they wear their their whiteness as a badge of honor, like they're an ally for folks of color. Um, but oftentimes they reinforce their whiteness because they want to show up and be this progressive white person. Um, there is Rhonda, the risk taker. So that's the person that is um, shows up in meetings and shows up in spaces to ask a lot of challenging questions, but centers race and this conversation of race in their work and really tries to disrupt that that notion. Um, but oftentimes is seen as an outsider by her white peers because this is the per this is the white person who's going to challenge the process. But uh, a lot of other white people 
may seem that it's too disruptive. Um, then there's Mike, the maintainer. And so this is the person that is that that is okay with kind of maintaining the status quo. Um, a lot of some of the participants talked about not wanting to rock the boat. Uh, they use the language of being a rebel without a cause. And so just kind of maintaining their whiteness within their within their uh, position. Uh, then there's Sam, the structuralist, and Sam is the person that is understands white supremacy and whiteness, but is more uh, approaches it more at the theoretical or conceptual level. So this person is really good at talking about whiteness and white supremacy theoretically, but on the ground level, um, they're not in and they're not in relationship with folks of color or not in relationship with um, people who are actually able to implement change. Uh, but they, they're good about talking about whiteness um, at the theoretical level. And the last person is um, uh, Dana, the developer. And that's the person who um, shows up oftentimes is the person who is questioning their own their own abilities or skills to, to do the work and engage in racial equity work. Um, lacks often lacks um, self-confidence to do the work, but shows up regardless. So this is person who maybe lacks some self-confidence and being able to disrupt racial inequities, but will show up, will be the first person to attend a training, to sign up, things like that. So those are the five archetypes that, that really emerged from the study. Um, and, and yeah, I think it's, you know, it was fun to play with those, those different, those different characters, because, you know, as I was, as I was writing about this, I was also witnessing this in real time, right? I was witnessing this on my campus <laughs> and, uh, the ways in which, you know, I was sitting in a staff meeting and just noticing and tracking power dynamics and how white people showed up in spaces. So that was fun. It was fun to, to write about this and then also to apply that and see that in action. And we'll get to a question, I think the next one about some of the major findings, but um, I, that's where I spent most of my time when I was reading over your dissertation was, you know, what are these scripts and what I thought was, was really interesting. And, and I would highly encourage people to read it because it's actually very readable and is, is like really interesting. Um, Agassiz, before you jumped on the call, I was talking about like reading my partner's dissertation in materials engineering, and that is not as readable, but you know, you, you talked about literally everything you talked about, or, you know, they did talked about being on diversity inclusion, you know, meetings and programming and, and all these different conversations. And then they also talk about HR policies. So what I really appreciate was that it, I feel like you covered everything. Like it, it, it wasn't, you know, whiteness in X, it was really like in every place that decisions are happening, how does it play out? Um, so it was just, I, I really appreciate that because I felt like anyone who's in higher ed can find a conversation that they've likely been a part of or have heard about um, because it didn't, you know, wasn't just in, you know, X, Y, or Z. So I just, I was really fascinated by a lot of what was shared. I am a, a recent big fan of phenomenology. Um, we just read uh, Queer Phenomenology by Sarah Ahmed in my class and I adored it. I thought it was so awesome and not obviously because hello queer, but I just, the approach to, the approach to like how to study things and like how we orient ourselves and what our bodies in position to spaces and the lines that we're placed on. I mean, you're talking a lot about these scripts and to me when I think about the scripts, cause I remember looking through your dissertation and one, I was like, haha, alliterations, love that. Um, but two also, again, it just like really signifies again, how folks are on these tracks 
um, and like you are you are on this track and you believe this is the track I'm on, this is what I'm doing. And to your point about like disrupting the narratives, it's like, how do you disrupt the script that you're on in order to like get onto a different track? And I know Sarah Ahmed talks about this specifically in, in her book, um, but again, it's like when we're on those lines, we're on those tracks, everything else that's not on those lines, that's not on those tracks is blurred or it just becomes a part of the background. And we don't think about those things because they're not on our path. Um, not to talk about my class readings in the space directly, but I did want to mention that because again, big fan of the queer phenomenology um, and again, recent convert. Um, but I think you already kind of touched on this a little bit, but if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more, um, but what are some of the other major findings from your research? I know you already talked about the scripts, but what are some of the other um, elements of the research that came about through the data and through your analyzing? Yeah, and you know, certainly the, the white scripts were the archetypes, the five archetypes were a part of the, the larger findings for, for the study. Um, and, and then you know, from there, and, and it also thinking about the, the implications for this and implications for practice, but um, what, what I was able, I was so fortunate because my committee, you know, oftentimes you think about writing a dissertation as this really formal process and from a you know totally depends on your program depends on who's on your committee and getting the approval um and that we joked in my in my program that uh i know we were talking about this earlier um just about a, a, the best dissertation is a done dissertation and you know a dissertation is often you know my dissertation is about over 250 pages and so you're writing a lot of this for your committee and you're critically thinking and having conversation with your committee um, but I was fortunate that my committee was open to a creative approach and um, to, to indicating or to highlight the findings of the study. So once, once I identified the five archetypes, the five white scripts in higher ed, then what I did in my study is I put, um, I put them in dialogue with one another, right? Because it's important in practice for us to understand how, how are we um, how do white people, white leaders in higher ed, how do we show up in spaces? How are we reinforcing or, or how do these, these white scripts manifest? Um, and how are we you know, disrupting these white scripts? But it's a whole different thing to then put them in conversation, to put white people in conversation with one another, and then to see how you know, Rhonda the risk taker, as someone that's gonna, going to challenge the process, how might Rhonda challenge Mike the maintainer? And, and I think that's the, that was the, I was able to play with that in my dissertation and the ways in which that came about. So I, I have a whole chapter. Um, I kind of split my, my dissertation into two findings chapters. So one on the white scripts and the second one called a dialogue on whiteness. So that's where it's a whole script. And I think that's, how, and again, for me, you know, Erica, you talked about this, but the having access for the reader to understand and be able to digest this information was really important to me as a practitioner. And so I put the, I put all the white, characters in con in conversation with one another and then throughout my dissertation then of course it was important to provide some analysis within that and some discussion so that i have these reflection points i situate myself within this within the dialogue and and i create this kind of environment where you're in a dialogue circle and you you're with all of these all of these five characters or these five white scripts and then i'm literally i I'm, i put myself embedded in the dissertation and serve as moderator for this for this dialogue on whiteness. And so that was really helpful for me, you know, to, to really further illuminate the findings about how not only how is whiteness um, represented within higher education through various through various folks, but also how is it practiced and how is it how is it really uh, yeah, how how is it really woven into all that we do and how do we challenge each other in that? So yeah, it was it was a fun it was a fun process, and I was fortunate to have a committee that was 
open to kind of this creative writing approach and to make sure that the information was as accessible as possible. I really appreciate as you're talking, you're really highlighting the fact that you inserted yourself into this study. Um, I, you know, I, as when I was reading through your dissertation, you know, the qualitative approach, I loved that you kind of highlighted and say, you know, them slash we, and like you acknowledge your positionality in, in this research. Like, I mean, you're talking about it now. You're like, I I'm a part of this. I'm a white person. I am, you know, I'm part of these scripts, you know, potentially I'm one of these archetypes as well. And I'm learning how to navigate that. And I really appreciate that because you know, as you're talking, I'm really thinking about, you know, what does the dissertation mean and what does it mean to undergo this scholarly process? And it's like to gain expertise or to show expertise and critical thought in a specific area. So I just really appreciate that as you're talking, you're like not like positioning yourself as like, I know all these things about whiteness now, but it's like, I understand these things about whiteness and myself and how this manifests around me. And I think going back to the phenomenology, phenomenological, I think that's the way you pronounce it, the phenomenology <laughs> approach, um, again, like your positioning and like your orientation to like the subject, which again, like, you know, so too many times I believe, and you kind of talk about this, I believe when, with the white scripts, but I, I think that white people do kind of excuse themselves from like the equity and inclusion conversations. It's like, well, that's not like our fight. So I'm not going to do anything about this, or I can't do anything about this because I'm a white person. And I, you know, on your conversation about disrupting the narrative, like, your research is saying, no, we are a part of this. This is our field. This is what we have to do. And very early on into your dissertation, you're like, white people need to bear the brunt of like doing equity and inclusion work. Because again, like a lot of it's like, oh, you're like a non-white person. Okay, so you care about, you, you the person who's gonna care about the diversity stuff, right? And it's like, no, we all have to care about the diversity stuff. It's not one person's job. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, you know, th that was, I'm glad you, you kind of highlighted that just the positionality uh, of this whole process because in, in any type of research but especially i think in in qualitative educational kind of studies research and in our field um you can't separate your own identities your own positionality from the research like that you're i think you would be um you know there's a lot of inherent bias and assumptions that are embedded within that so we it's important to name that and and to really grapple with that within ourselves and our own identity so it was really important for me when i was writing this study and again going back to the, the original question from that my my professor posed of like um can you have integrity doing this work for me it was kind of this integrity question so what as a white as a white leader in higher education as a white man in, in higher education what um i have to own that my own positionality my own identities and the complexities of those identities and how that impacts how i even interpret the research and I, I do I try to in my in my dissertation in the methodology section, which is chapter three, you focus on um, I, I try to zoom in a little bit to talk about that whiteness was even embedded in the actual research itself. Right. Me as a white person interviewing other white people inherently is reinforcing a power, a narrative there of whiteness or centering whiteness. So it was important to name that and to and to but then challenge that at the same time. So it was it was such a. It, the, the outcomes or the the dissertation itself, my hope is that it can be useful, you know, to further advance our field in student affairs and in higher ed and that knowledge base. But also, it was a deeply personal journey for me in my own in my own reflection. And I think that was the really cool thing. Once I leaned into that in my dissertation writing, that it was a reflective process for me, and I was on this journey for myself and producing this work. Um, yeah, that felt a little, that felt liberating in a way because I was like, okay, here we go. I'm I'm gonna be, I'm gonna put myself and center myself while at the same time trying trying to do center this this phenomenon of whiteness in the work.
So it's really complicated, but, but fun at the same time. And I, I think I, I heard a lot of that in, in reading some of this too, from some of the you know archetypes that you talked about, because so many of them mentioned this fear of bringing things up, but then also seeing in, in spaces where they were, you know, colors, colleagues of color that, oh, they, they are obviously trepidatious to say something. And it's my place to use that power to do something about it. And then, then some of them were like, as Agassi said, no, like, it's not really about me. So I shouldn't say anything. So I, I think it just like really came to life. Um, and I do plan on reading the entire thing because well, one, I don't know how to pronounce phenomen phenomenology, maybe you said, but two, it was just like really fascinating. So I'm just sort of like fan fangirling over here. Um, I'm going to add a quick question um, and replace one that we were going to ask you, but just before we wrap up, is there, you know, a key takeaway? Is there, is there one line in your dissertation that you want people to like really remember? Um, and I'll share that I had one that was, we assume that representation equals equity or justice. And I like have that on a sticky note now in my office. W what is that one thing that you want people to take away? I know that's an impossible question. Yeah, uh, for me, it's, it's about, uh, there was a quote that I think I put on my, in the last chapter to start it, but it was, a, it was when a participant talked about that they saw whiteness as part of them. Like they, they really embraced their whiteness and in a way that centered their whiteness and saw that as a lens to then view their work in higher ed and student affairs. Because again, it's about as, as a white person having, and this, I think this expands, you know, and to, to any type of privileged identity is that having, having that acknowledgement of, of, not seeing your privileged identity as something that's distant from us or objective from us, but as something that is embedded with, within us and being able to look at, you know, owning that, quite frankly, I think it's about ownership and accountability and then being able to use that to understand the, the, the power that is inherently embedded within that. And so there's, um, you know, there's so many different ways and I hope to expand on this in the future for a future, you know, publication, but just the ways in which power manifests and how whiteness is embedded within that. And so, yeah, I think that quote that I highlighted on the, in the last chapter around the implications was just this participant owning to say, I see my, I see my whiteness as part of, as part of me, as part of who I am. Um, certainly, you know, it's true. If they're a white person, that is who they are, but that, that ownership and that accountability as well. I think that's a, a perfect wrap up. Um, and thank you so much. I feel like I learned a ton in this process. Um, so we really are really thankful for you. Also congrats, right? It's, you know, not every day that you win distribution of the year. So really very much congratulations and super exciting for all the things that are to come from, you know, the rest of your career. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I mean, thank you again for everyone for joining us for the first five years presented by SAXA. Uh, you know, thanks to Miles, as always, for producing our podcast and shamelessly Agassi for editing our episodes. And, uh, you know, this is one of maybe our first episodes where you might hear some intro music. So we're excited for that. I can't remember what it sounds like, but you already heard it because you're listening to the episode. You can get more information about SAXA, the Southern Association for College Student Affairs, on the various social media outlets. You can find them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Saxa fan page, on Twitter at Saxa tweets, Instagram Saxa grams. If you're also looking for their website, it is saxa.org. 
Dustin, do you have any ways for our guests to contact you? Should they have any questions or want to follow up on this conversation? Sure. Yeah, I would love to stay engaged with the folks uh, around just the practitioner and, and scholarly research side of things. If there are any questions that come up from any any folks. Um, but for me, uh, the easiest way is probably just to connect over LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Dustin Evett Young, um, or you can shoot me an email. My email address is devett, D-E-V-A-T-T, at oberlin.edu. Would love to keep the conversation going on this topic or any questions that come up. And of course, if you want to connect with Agassi and I, you can certainly do that. We are on all the things. Um, I am on Twitter at Erica M underscore Aguiar. That's A-G-U-I-A-R. Agassi, where are you at? You can find me at Agassi underscore R. That's A-G-A-S-S-Y underscore R. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another wonderful episode of The First Five Years. Until next time, thanks so much.